You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry. You're very welcome to the show tonight. I hope I find you well on this Wednesday evening. Before we start the show, I want to say a big congratulations to the Kerry football team on reaching the All-Ireland Final. Shawnee O'Shea has nerves of steel, and even though I'm in a wheelchair, he nearly produced a miracle when he put that ball over the bar because I nearly stood up with the excitement. So, we're on to the All-Ireland Final against Galway, and I'd say this might be your year. I'm delighted to say that my guest on Stand Out with me, Ian O'Connell, this week is Catty Stritch. I talked to Catty about a crazy and heartbreaking story. Catty's family rallied around her sister Elaine when she was diagnosed with cancer in 2014. After rigorous treatment, life was getting back to normal, until 2015 when Elaine's husband passed suffered a fall and sadly passed away. Just over a year later, Elaine's cancer returned and she too sadly passed away. Sit back and enjoy the show. How are you keeping anyway? All good? Great, I was just saying, um, uh, my other half came back there to mind, uh, Freddie, he's, well, he's on his lunch break, and they were saying, oh, what's that for now that you're doing it? And I said, um, oh, it's Radio Kerry. Well, I hope you say up Galway at the end of it. <laughs> I'm actually was common, but I live in Galway. You're <laughs> off common originally, all right. You, we'll, um, we'll get you a half and half jersey, Kerry and Galway, so. <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't. Well, I, I was watching it. I didn't go to it. I, was, yeah. I watched both. I watched the Kerry one and the uh, Galway one. Yeah, I don't follow Gad that closely anymore. It's a really? soccer house here. They're big into soccer in this house. But um, yeah, no, I, I watched them. Very good. Jesus, excellent. Both of them. It'd be great. And I wanted Kerry to win because I want I want Galway to meet Kerry. I always like to bring my guests kind of back to the to the start. You were telling me that there your. Roscommon originally living in Galway now, is it? That's right, yes. I'm from Roscommon originally, yeah. But living in Galway, I've been going since um, probably about 2010, I think. Or even earlier, 2009, maybe. 2008, 2009. I came home from... So I'm from Roscommon, went to school in County Galway. I'm right on the border there of Galway, my own Roscommon, where I'm from. The three counties meet. Um but after school, I went to New York, actually. I was there for seven years. And then I uh, came back and moved to Galway. So I haven't lived at home where I'm from since I was 17. So I'm a long time gone now. What was New York like? I, I, I'd always, I always wanted to, I always say I'm going to move over for, for a year or something. I love New York. Yeah, it was amazing. It, it, like, it was amazing. And I've such deep connections with people there because... I think when you move away, you don't have family at all, really. So your friends become your family, very much so. And I was just actually sadly at a funeral the other day of a a guy from America, you know, that I, he's from home, from Ireland, but, you know, he was in America. But um, you just become so connected to people over there. But in answer to your question, it was just so much fun. So I moved over when I was 17. Well, I was just gone 18 just gone 18 and it was three weeks after the twin towers after the terrorist attacks so when i got there they they were still burning like we we went down you know the guy that picked us up brought us down shown us around or whatever and it was the eeriest thing because all the streets were still blocked off um they were still finding bodies 
Um, it was burning, you know, because, of, you know, that we have so many stories down that yeah. there's trapped fires underneath. Um, so it was pretty crazy and scary at that time going over there. Everyone thought it was wild was to go over there. Smoke everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boy. Um, it was scary. It was it was scary. Like, plus the fact that, you know, the, the world was on edge. You know, there were it, it would be like me going to move into Ukraine you know, yeah. right after that started. It was kind of the equivalent because everyone thought this is going to be world war, you know. But um, sure, when you're 18, <laughs> you don't care about anything only to get going. So I moved to this Irish neighborhood called Woodlawn. Um, and, oh, Jesus, it just was a ball. Like, you know, no no rules. You're out on your own. Um, and the drink culture is insane over there, you know, as well. So liquid diet. it was wild. But you grow up pretty fast. That was the good thing about it. Like you had to learn quite quickly, you know, how to do your washing and you're on your own. You're on your own two feet. But it's great. It's great education. Like I didn't actually go to college, but I say I went to the College of Life. You know, I had to get a job. I had to pay rent. You know, I I had to get together pretty fast. And it's amazing what, what it teaches you over there, yeah. So, yeah, so I stayed there for seven years. I came home once for my sister's wedding. Of course, I was illegal. I was one of those illegal aliens. Uh, but I, I I got back in, and then I moved home a couple of years after that then. So settled in Galway then. I needed I needed a, a city life after that. I said that, that must have been unbelievable, like all the media attention as well and the... Uh... The, the Twin Towers. Um, I suppose a lot of people might have heard about your your relationship with your sister and what sadly happened to her. Um, do you want to bring me back to to that time? What was your relationship like with your sister? Because I've heard interviews and you were like best friends by the sounds of things. Yeah, I mean... Don't get me wrong. We would kill each other too, like siblings do, you know. But I think the thing about that is, you know, um, if you have an argument with a friend or something, then it can really change the whole dynamic and it can change the course of everything. But with a sibling, it's like it doesn't matter. Like you're, yeah. you're back to, we still love each other no matter what, you know. So even though we would kill each other, it didn't matter because we were there for each other. So very much with her. So she was the eldest in our family. I was born a year and a half later, I think, about that. So we're very close in age. And then uh, we had uh, twin brothers and they didn't come along until I was seven. So we, it was just the two of us for a long time, you know? And uh, yeah, we got on so well. Um, just in that we were so alike each other, I felt like we got the same jokes and, you know, she was big into the unbelievables and we'd be skip laughing at stupid shit like that or Beyonce and you know just silly stuff but um just you know great company for each other and and would like to do things together a lot we'd go shopping a lot we'd go um maybe to concerts to events nights out all of that but like a massive loyalty I just always felt like you know, in some ways she almost felt like my mother, even though my mother's alive, like she was always looking out for me and like, try this and do that. And even with my work, when I started my business, I'd ask her, what do you think? Should I do this? Should I do that? Because I wouldn't know the right way to do things. I felt that she was just so, she had an old head on her shoulders, even though she was a year and a half older, she felt way wiser. 
And she'd always be saying, you shouldn't do that now and you should do this. And I just felt like, you know, again, with friends, friends are amazing, but they might just tell you what you want to hear, whereas yeah. she would tell you the truth, which I really appreciated that about her, you know. But um, yeah, we just clicked so well. And exactly that, we were friends. Like we were friends above all else, yeah. Um, no, by the sounds of things, you are you are very close. And and like you said, she tell you what you want to hear. And I think that's that's a hundred times better than a friend telling you what you want to hear, like you said. Um mm-hmm. moving on another another while then when when you got older and stuff and she got she kind of started getting um headaches and stuff, wasn't it? At the start. Yeah. And what that led to so yeah, so she um was 33, so she had just had um her second boy, um, Adam, and she started to get um kind of headaches, uh pins and needles in her hands and her legs, and just subtle things, not things that would make you feel alarmed. You know, there's no lump, there's no, you yeah. know, the things that we're we're I suppose conditioned to be alarmed by. There was none of that. No and very obvious signs. Yeah, you're 33. So it wasn't even that she was feeling unwell. She wasn't getting sick or anything. It was just strange things. And then she had kind of, I remember she told me that she was at work one day and people were talking and it sounded like, you know, when you've been in a swimming pool, like there was water in her ears or something. She couldn't hear properly. And that's really what pushed her to go. And her speech was a bit funny. Um, her mouth was kind of moving at a different speed to what she was saying, things like that, you know, but it, again, it was nothing alarming. So she, you know, her doctor sent her for um, a scan, a, a, a CT scan or MRIs and that kind of thing. But she was going one day to get the results. And I didn't even know that she was going to get results. It was that, you know, I suppose it was, in a, you know, you, circumstances, sometimes you hear people waiting for results and everybody is primed for a phone call. I didn't even know she was going. It was that non-sinister. So she, I, my phone rang. I was in uh, Galway. I was working and my phone rang and she was just in hysterics and said that she was in Castlebar Hospital and can I come down quick? And that they had found a lesion on her brain. I mean, it's just so indescribable when, when it's just plucked out of the, the blue. You've never heard anything about a brain. You, you know, yeah. what? Like, what are you talking about? What's a lesion? No idea what a lesion is. So basically, she said it's a tumor. I think the medical uh, term for it is a lesion. So um, it, it was a tumor. And uh, she was sent to Beaumont the following weekend. Um, and it, as it turned out, she had brain surgery the following Friday to remove a tumor. And then that's just kind of the start because you don't really know if it's cancerous until it's removed and they biopsy it. Uh, So she had a biopsy and it turned out that it was unfortunately a grade four uh, malignant um, uh, gliosarcoma, uh, which is it's a brain tumor. So, yeah, so it was devastating news. The news they gave her was that this is going to significantly reduce your life expectancy. of course, I went straight on to Google. I couldn't help it. And like everyone. That's me. Yeah, I scrambled for, I, I need to know, I need to know. Um, and it was very frightening because I, I can actually still remember where I was. I can remember being in bed uh, in my home house. Uh, I wasn't living there, but obviously I was there that night. I could just, that's how shocking it was to me. I can remember where I was and I was reading 
median median survival rates and I had to google what does median mean I didn't even know what that meant median means average so average survival rate is 18 to 24 months once you get this tumor 18 to 24 months and you know that's the average and the doctors had said to her she could expect maybe five years left of her life once you get this, so they they don't even really give you a fighting chance. They'll tell you they'll treat it, but the average person will be dead within five years with this tumor. That's it was obviously a huge, a huge shock. And even like when I when I had my accident, they said don't look on Google. And I think it's only human instinct to go straight to Google. I remember mm-hmm. hearing that you you referenced that time to a song. Was it a random Tuesday at four thirty or something? Yes. So the, you know, this song is called Sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann. It's a really cool song. Um, it's kind of like life advice. But one of the things it says on that song is um, uh, don't worry about random things. Your real troubles are likely to be something that blindsides you. Some idle Tuesday afternoon, which is exactly what it was. It was a Tuesday afternoon when she called me, which is so random. But I remember being conscious of that song before this even happened. Like, don't worry about things like, you know, the real troubles are when you get that phone call and in a split second, which you can obviously relate to, in a second, life changes forever. The course of your life, the path you thought you were on, you're not on that anymore. You're gone. You can't go back on that road anymore. Smooth sailing is gone. So now you're over here. But that happens to people every single day. I mean, there'll be somebody today, unfortunately, that is getting a phone call in this country, you know, uh, that is changing their whole life. Um, so I was always very conscious and aware of that of that song and just how it played out for us. Yeah, it fitted in so right with the with the yeah. situation that was going on. Um, moving moving on, you you spoke about um when when she got diagnosed and stuff you started taking kind of random videos and stuff and I remember you you spoke about one where she the baby was going up on her lap or something what made you what 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 kind of clicked in your brain to say I'm going to start taking these videos well honestly it was reading that on google I mean average life expectancy 18 to 24 months I mean and there's little babies, little children involved. I mean, I knew there, there's nothing that I can do, which is which is a massive part of, of the anxiety of people that are, you know, on the edges. You know, even I'm sure your own family had it. It's, it's really, really difficult when you're on the outside looking in and you can't do anything. You can't change the outcome, really. And you try and you buy healthy food and blenders and try. But... For me, looking at the situation and, and being, you know, somewhat aware of, of the fact that these children are so young and how are they going to have memories? And I just thought I need to get as much as possible. I need to. It, what if she's not? And look, don't get me wrong. I held hope and thought that she would beat the odds and, and wished her and willed her to survive. But at the same time, I am a realist and a part of me accepted that this the odds of this happening is very, very high. The odds are against her. And so I, I wanted to do what I could to preserve her memory, you know, so people would remember her 
in particular her children, if, if they get older and they wanted to see who she was, what she looked like, the relationship they had, there's only one way of doing that, you know? And I think that's probably what would be, what I would imagine to be difficult for, for children when they grow up without a parent is, I can't remember her. What did she sound like? What did she laugh like? What did she look like? So, you know, I wanted to be sure I had some document, document, you know, document that. And it was such, that, such a brilliant idea, you know, for, for the kids. Um, Elaine, she strikes me as the kind of person that always kind of was positive and that she, even when she was going through so much that she had that great humour. Was she always like that going through her battle? Yeah, she definitely was. I think the word I would have for her is tough. She was tough, uh, mixed in with uh, humour. And she was courageous, like very courageous. I remember when she died, a cousin of mine texted me and said, beautiful, courageous Elaine. And it was so emotional getting that text because that just summed her up completely. Um, but yeah, she, you know, if if she was scared, she never showed it. Never, never showed it. But there was a part of Elaine that very much was like the mother of our family, which is weird because, you know, as I said, my parents are alive. But she mothered us siblings she just had that natural role of being the boss and telling us where we were going to have the Christmas dinner and what we were going to do she was like the one I guess we were younger she was the married one so she was like the mom but even in her illness that's how she was with all of us even my parents she was like calling shots telling everyone what to do um you know one night in particular when the surgeon told her um, consultant pretty much said, look, it's the end of the road here. There's not much more else we can do. And she called us all into the room. And at this point, she effectively was paralyzed herself because she couldn't move. Uh, the brain stem was affected at the back of her head. Um, that when the cancer returned or was it the first time? When it returned, yeah. So when, when, she, was, when she was sick uh, the second time, she just kind of called us all in and said, you know, you need to get your shit together now and you can't be arguing and, and you know, you need to pull together and you're going to have a tough road ahead and all of that. So even, you know, at, at that stage, she was very much uh, very tough. But as you said, then she goes straight back into a joke. You know, that was obviously her coping. But she would keep the bright side out always. And um, I think humour, even um, when I when I used to have her days in hospital, I think even myself, I, I use humour to kind of not to forget about what was happening, but just to, it was my way as well of kind of showing people how I reacted to, you know, to going through the the adversity was, yeah. I think, I think Elaine, by the sounds of things, she kind of was the same as that, wasn't she? Yeah. And I think like, just again, I, I think some of the reasons that she did it was she was worried about us. So she didn't want us to feel sad or hurt. And as I said, she was like the mother, she mother duck. She was like, you know, mother hen. And she, a lot of the times, I think she did it to protect us that I'm okay here, even though she probably wasn't. I think she was doing that to say, I'm okay. Look at I'm, you know, and she'd take the piss and she'd have a laugh and she'd have a joke. But I think, she, I think she had to get a lot of strength to do that. You know, yeah. Um, you you're big into fitness yourself, and I see um 
kind of on Instagram and stuff that you're always kind of you're always into fitness and that side of things. Um, I remember you were saying that Elaine, she went to take up one of your fitness classes, didn't she? And you, you mm. planned on doing the, was it the Tough Mudder it's called? Yeah, Tough Mudder, yeah. She, so, she um, you use that as the fitness class? Do you think she used that as a coping mechanism? Well, she did because I suppose in the meantime, tragically, so she had her brain tumor in 2014 and then in 2015 she was kind of recovering uh, and then a really tragic accident happened and her husband died in How an accident yeah so that was like devastating I mean beyond devastating because it was so unexpected um she was the one that was sick here we were expecting her to die and you know her we knew her life was shortened and then bang bang again like that you know instant in a second life has changed again and wasn't that i mean if life wasn't bad of, enough was that the morning of pa's mom's funeral i remember hearing you say yeah 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 so his mom had died the the the, the a couple of days previous so they were just preparing for the funeral uh that evening and um yes he was erecting a light and uh it, it kind of um it was like a, one of those makeshift lights you know concrete at the bottom and it yeah. kind of just catapulted and you know flung him and he had a massive brain injury he was airlifted to Beaumont Hospital uh, but he didn't survive, unfortunately. It was just so tragic. Um, and we were all devastated by that. Devastated. The whole community was devastated. Um, and just knowing as well what she was, you know, what was what she was facing. You know, she knew, she never forgot those doctors' words. And the terror and fear that must bring when you have two small children, yeah. knowing that I, I could be gone next, you know. So what she did next was to me so inspiring like you know anyone would have forgiven her for just giving up going to the room going to the bed take the kids I can't cope she did not lie down for one day she kept going she didn't even you know I would come around a week after his funeral I'll take the kids go stay in bed stay in bed no up up at it and she would say I have to, like, I, I have to get on with things now. Um, they're the only, you know, chance in the world these two boys have is me. And I have to be well for them. I have to be here as long as I can for them. So she fought back and she went into fitness in a big way and health. You know, she was training as much. And I think it was as much for her mental health than anything. You know, yeah. grief is grief. And it's very, very hard to combat that. It's a set of emotions that no matter what you do, the pain is there. No matter what you do, you can't just, you know, uh, exercise. Yeah, you can't just shrug into a good mood. It's not like that. It's, it's a process. You have to feel the pain of someone's loss. And she absolutely did. But she again, she was strong and she was brave and she just got up and fought because she wanted to. And also one of the things that I remember her saying is, I want this to be a happy house I don't want the boys to look back and remember sadness yeah you know so even though she was heartbroken she kind of kept that in so the two of us got really fit well I was very fit I was teaching the classes and she came to my classes again to keep herself busy you know she was obviously lonely she wanted to get out and about 
Um, and we decided, I had done it a few times. Tough Mudder is an obstacle course uh, mud run. Uh, oh, tough, yeah, I've heard you know? of it. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's tough. It's like 20 kilometers, I think. And uh, there's ice baths, there's electric shocks, it's all sorts of... And um, the two of us decided to, to do that. Uh, um, and a group of people did it. And we raised money for Pieta House that time. Um, and yeah, she, she did it and she was full of life and she had the best crack doing it. And this was only six or seven months after her husband had passed away, which is pretty phenomenal and pretty impressive to have. She was the most joyous one there. You know, she was living life and it's just so hard to fathom. You know, I still wonder, was she just a really good act- actress that she could yeah. be pulled that out or was she actually joyful? And I think she was joyful in that moment. But as she often said to me, nobody knows what I go through when I close that bedroom door at nighttime. You know, so true. So true. And like you said, she was kind of positive and she stayed active. And I think the I know someone as well that was kind of in the situation where her husband died and they just had a new baby. And she said that keeping having the two kids kind of she had a reason to get up in the morning to to keep going for them. Um, You said there about when the the cancer came back, there was kind of um, at your fitness class, there was kind of a a chain of events and you went to the hospital a few times and it took a while for them to kind of diagnose what it was in the spine, wasn't it? Yeah, so um, it was her husband's first anniversary. And so, you know, her, I suppose, you know, all of us took a bit of a dip, you know, and the mood was was tense and heavy and, you know, her energy wasn't as high as it had been. So obviously we thought, you know, that's normal, you know, given what weekend it is. And then she came to the uh, class on the Monday after his anniversary that weekend and she left all of a sudden, which she never would. Um, and, you know, I called her straight after the class. She just said, I'm going. I said, fine. Kept going with my class. Rang her afterwards and she said that she had a blind and a headache and that she couldn't really see the cars on the way home. And that kind of scared me because I thought, how do you mean you couldn't see them? I was kind of quizzing her like as in your vision went funny or you're just really tired and she was like oh I don't know it's just yeah like I couldn't really see properly and just and I was like oh it must be just the headache you know this is the weekend you think about it you know it's obvious that you would feel this way so took the notice of that and she went home had some rest rang her the next day I'm fine again and grand had a good sleep great fantastic on with your week then the following weekend it was the same thing, you know, this urgent phone call. Of, oh, my God, my head is so bad. I have a brutal headache. Can you come and get the boys? I'm getting sick as well. Okay, fine. Passed in again the following day. And this went on and on and on. And each weekend it was getting progressively worse. You know, she was now vomiting. Uh, she was now gone into the bed, which we knew wasn't normal for her. She never did this. And there was a part of us thinking, you know, is this maybe, um, you know, a bit, a bit of uh, maybe grief? It was just gone to the bed, wasn't getting up. Uh, and we started to think, you know, some of us, obviously, we didn't know what it was. So she was going to the GP, she was going to the doctor. He was saying, mm, okay, I'll refer you, referred her, waiting for an appointment. Then 
it's progressively got worse. And we started going to A&E with her because she was in so much pain with it. And keep in mind, this girl would not make a fuss if she didn't have to. She would say, I'm fine, I'm fine. She'd rather not go. She wasn't to complain either, I'd say. No, definitely not, no. So we we took her to A&E. One night she was very bad. She rang me crying and she was just in a bad way. And, and so we, we took her to A&E. And they sent her home, just said, look, it's migraines. It seems to be, it could be migraines. We don't know. Sent her home, pain med. Back, you know, within maybe five days, back into A&E again. Uh, and, and it continued for ages. And it, it got to the point where she had lost maybe two or three stone in weight. She was getting seizures. She was on the floor with her eyes rolling in her head. Like the scariest thing that you could ever imagine. I can still recall coming one day and the ambulance was coming out all the time for her. Um, And I can still recall one day myself and my dad had to carry her down the stairs. And we we thought that she was dying. That's how bad she was because she was gone non-responsive and she was fitting like seizures and every time she would go in they would do a scan on her brain and say well you have a history for brain tumor Elaine there's nothing showing on your scan and they'd send her home and I was getting desperate going you have to stop sending her home we're going to be back in again in three or four days there's something really wrong here can someone not do something um and yeah eventually she went she was in Castlebar hospital she was two weeks there waiting for a bed two weeks doing nothing with her just curtain around her and yeah you'll have to wait for bed and go away was that was around insane. when the bed crisis was or something yes exactly that yeah um they you know we, again we're on the border so if an ambulance comes they'll either come from castlebar hospital or from Galway. and oh, castlebar wow. has no um neuro um specialities there you know for the brain so you know, when she got there, she just kind of got stuck in the system. You know, they kept her, but they didn't know what they were keeping her for. They were giving her tests, but they couldn't come back with anything. So they just left her there. And she was that ill that, as I said, she couldn't move. She couldn't lift her hand. I would have to feed her. I'd have to pour a drink into her mouth. She could not move. And I was pleading with them. I'm like, she's 30 bloody what was she at this time? 35. I'm like, she's 35. Like, this is not normal. You need to do something here. Is that um, not enough seeing her like that? Is that not yeah. enough for you to actually prioritize and find out? That's the problem with the system is that it's completely broken. That, well, we've no beds here. What do you want us to do? You know, there's no beds in Galway. She has to wait for a bed to become available. And there never was a bed available. It just never happened. So, yeah, so the... So the um, the hospital just didn't know what to do with her. So I called her consultant in Galway. And what happened was we managed to get an outpatient appointment. Uh, and he said, bring her up. And her secretary said, look, if she's bad enough, then we'll try and keep her on the day. I said, she is bad enough, you know. Yeah. And when she went to that appointment, they were kind of shocked because he knew her from her history and stuff, you know. And he was shocked. And at that point, she was uh, kind of hallucinating. She was seeing things. Um, and, and they weren't sure if the hallucinations were a mental thing, like the, is this a big breakdown that she's having Yeah. or if it was medical, but in the heel of the hunt, it turned out that, uh, the cancer had returned and, um, the hallucinations she was getting was, uh, from 
the cancer had returned to her spine and the brain stem at the bottom of your brain, the bottom of your neck controls like your, your um, movement, your vision, all that kind of thing. And that's why that was being affected. That's why she was kind of seeing shadows and things. Um, that's why she couldn't lift her head. She couldn't lift her hands to feed herself because it was all being affected uh, because of this. And yeah, they said that she has a three centimeters tumor in her spine, but that's the least of her worries. And that to us was devastating because I thought, why did you not scan her from head to toe for the yeah. last two or three months? On day one. Um, the seizures, which some people had said in the hospitals that they thought were perhaps um, psych related. They thought that she was Basically, just to, to say it out there, they thought she was going insane. The seizures, were from, the seizures were from pain. And to hear that this girl was collapsing with pain, even though she was in your hospitals how many times? Yeah. Um, yeah, and you were saying that maybe she was having a breakdown. I mean, that was absolutely devastating. And so, yeah, so that they... they, they realized then they scanned her from head to toe and realized that it was back and she died three weeks later in the hospital in Galway so it was it was fast and furious it came back in so October was her husband's anniversary and she died at the real start of February so there was no time to say goodbye or you know do anything else with life it was it was it was too late that's heartbreaking it is it's all especially after going through all of that, you know, in the hospital and stuff. After she passed away, you 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 done the Tough Mother um course thing again and you um there were I believe there was loads of people that done it with you and it was raising money for a playground or something, wasn't it? Yeah, so um after she died, I just needed a focus. I needed to do something and I really wanted to push on and get something to remember them by, you know, because, you know, you got to act straight away. They're a young couple. And I thought, especially I was conscious of my nephews, I wanted a way for them yeah. uh, to, to remember them and have a place. And so at the time, myself and Elaine had been on a committee trying to get a playground built uh, but we kept, you know, meeting stumbling blocks between money and a site and all of that. And I just thought, well, now is the time to get the money raised, if ever there was a time. Because the whole community was devastated. It's a young couple. It's just so unheard of. And so everyone was willing to help. So I said, let's do Tough Mudder again. Um, it's, it's, it's a way to get people involved. And the more people you have involved... And I know this from previous fundra fundraising. It's hard to do it on your own. It's hard to raise 100,000 on your own. Yeah. But if you have 100 people doing it, you'd have a, a greater chance. So in the end, there was, I think, over 300 people came with me to do. Yeah, it was a huge team stretch, we called ourselves. And um, which is my surname, obviously. But uh, we uh, took off in, in, in July to uh, Old Castle County Mead and we did it and we raised 100 and in the end we raised 130,000 um, but we did that in four short months and it was phenomenal but it's a testament to you know the community and the generosity of people and people just wanting to help and, and knowing it was a tragic circumstance and we just opened the playground there uh, officially about two months ago. It's officially opened. Oh, yeah. It's named after Elaine and Pa, and it's lovely. It's so nice. 
that's a beautiful um idea and kind of testament to, to the two of them. What um what does because I know myself fundraising and like people, you know, rallying around together and um I think especially when you're living in kind of a smaller town like for myself here in Killarney and Kerry and up the country and all over Ireland, uh, what does community mean to you? Because without community, I don't think that you'd know half the people and there wouldn't be so much things done. What does community mean to you? You're absolutely spot on. I mean, I think the best of the community comes out, especially in, in hard times, you know. And I guess you would know too, like people, especially in Ireland, want to help and they want to do something. And nothing is greater so than in small communities. And I saw that with the funerals, you know, it's just phenomenal. Like where I live now is in Galway. It's still kind of countryside, but not everyone knows each other as tightly as they would where I'm from, which is a lot more rural. Um, and they think it's insane. They'd be laughing at the fact, you know, everyone's knows everyone. Um, but community to me is is it's everything. It's um, you know, it's friendship, it's loyalty, it's support, it's everything that you need in a tough time. And you know, it's 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 peace as well. You, you can get an awful lot of peace from leaning on people like that and things get done with communities as you said it doesn't happen like I I absolutely agree I would not have done that or got a team of people together if I was just calling on strangers you know in fact it was strangers that did it but it was friends of friends of friends of friends you know and it was community but it's it's getting that core bunch around you that believe in you and that will are willing to do anything for you you know, their community want to support their own because they feel like you're, that you're their own. So they, they support you. And I see it still to this day. If I share a post, if I have a new business idea, the same bunch of people will share it for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. They'll share it for me. And it isn't, maybe they're not interested in what I'm doing, but they're doing it out of, she's one of us. She's one of yeah. our own. And it's just so nice and so heartwarming to have that in small communities because it is rare. It's getting rarer even still. Yeah. You know, that that small town community feel, it's lovely. Absolutely, 100%. And um, before we finish up, I just want to talk about what you do now on um, online and on Instagram and stuff and the kind of positive attitude and kind of, you know, motivation. Do you think that what you experienced with Elaine has kind of shoved you more onto what you do now? Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, it taught me an awful lot of lessons. I, um, I, I was in that kind of industry anyway of helping people, yeah. uh, helping people to live a better life and to make the most of their life. Because look, as, as we said, a phone call and it all changes and it's out of your control. So I really try to help people to feel better about themselves. It's not all about weight loss. It's about feeling better and stop beating yourself up and knowing life is short and make the most of it. So that's one side of what I do. And definitely Elaine pushed me. It became so apparent and so obvious to me that, oh my God, we don't have a lot of time in this world. Let's do all the things. Let's have fun. And then 
from that, I also, you know, started a community. I guess community is the thing that I like. It's funny, isn't it? Because you just asked about community. I've yeah. built a lot of communities between the Team Stretch community, my online community, my fitness. And now I have a grief community. So I set up a, a page called Grief Ireland. And, you know, it's it's been phenomenal. I, I host live interviews um, with people, all walks of life, people who have uh, experienced grief and loss uh, in, in all of the ways you can imagine. And it's pretty powerful because it's a page where people can turn to and I know from myself you're seeking out someone who has been there who has been through it uh that's what you want and that's how you feel supported is is seeing somebody else's story and how they managed and maybe getting a bit of hope that they're still here and they're still carrying on and uh, so that page has been huge and I have great plans for it you know we're, we're talking about doing retreats and things like that because I want to bring the people together uh, but there's a massive need for conversation still around grief and loss in Ireland because it is very, very hard. Oh, my yeah. God, don't get me wrong. It's, it's desperately hard uh, grief and it's very isolating. And I think that it's still it's still a little bit taboo uh, in this country. You know, people don't know what to say or do with you. You know, they'd rather cross the street than literally say acknowledge what's happened to you or how you are you know and I'm sure you might have experienced that yourself yeah um you know there's grief when you have a your life changes and it's not the life that you thought you would have there's a grief there but it's it's I suppose trying to equip people with the words and, and the tools to navigate that and I I love it I really love it and I love obviously my other job that I do with online coaching motivating people I work with people one-on-one -on -one. I love it I love it because I think I believe in people. I'm like, you can, you can do it. You can do it. You just need someone to get in your corner and believe in you. And that's, that's who I am. I'm that person. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. And the grief page. Cause sometimes when that happens to a family, you think there is no right thing to say, but like talking yeah. to somebody else like yourself that has gone through, through it with Elaine and her husband, like in such a, a short period of time, you know just as well as anyone like and for for anyone else out there before we finish where can they get you on instagram and on your own social what's your own page so it's kathy stretch which is an absolute mouthful to spell because i i'm I, <laughs> it's not even spelled in the normal way it's k-a-t-h-i-e to make it awkward and then stretch good looks and spell of that one it's s-t-r-i-t-c-h Kathy Stritch PT and then Grief Ireland. If you go to Grief Ireland, which is easier to spell, you'll be able to see my handle in there as well for my own for the motivational coaching side of things. But yeah, that's where I'm that's where I'm hanging out. Brilliant. Kathy, you're a phenomenal person and I'm so happy that you you came on today. And I know this this interview is gonna go along well with people listening and help people that that are going through grief and stuff and you know that there is there is room for for positivity after and, and everything so thanks a million for coming on today and really appreciate it oh thank you for having me i really appreciate you asking me on it's been lovely to chat now unfortunately that's all we have time for tonight i hope you all enjoyed the show and i really appreciate you tuning in as always if you have any questions or requests for next week's show you can get in contact with me through my instagram enoconnell321 or through my email address, ioconnell at radiocarry.ie. I hope you're all having a great week. Stay tuned in because Brian Priestley is up next with That's Jazz. I'll be back at the same time next Wednesday night from 8 to 9pm.
Until then, stay safe and mind yourself. You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry.